Well, God calls us now to the fellowship of his word. Having dedicated ourselves to him, now we come to fellowship with him, both in the preached word and also in the, in the table. God's word says this to us. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Well, brothers and sisters, this uh, certainly was spoken of regarding our Savior, Jesus Christ, but it is also spoken of to you who are in Christ. And as you are in Christ, God is your protector, and as you call upon him, he he promises you, he tells you, I will be with you in trouble, I will rescue you, and I will honor you, and I will satisfy you with long life. Not necessarily long life upon this earth, but certainly, brothers and sisters, long life in the new heavens, in the new earth to which we look. And so, as the word is preached to you this morning, hear the word of God. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. There's an insert in your bulletin to follow along. We've been in Haggai, and uh, some of you know, my session does, that this past week I had a pipe burst in my office. So I spent two days of last week cleaning and drying and working and then uh, putting it back uh, together. So um, I was not able to do what is necessary to be ready to preach on Haggai, so uh, we're going to return to a, a text that we looked at in 2006, which most of you were not here, or if you were, you maybe have forgotten. But we're going to look at Matthew 25, 1 through 13, the parable of the ten virgins. And um, as we approach this passage, just a reminder, parables are, are um, um, messages carried in a vehicle. Okay, so the prevailing understanding of how to interpret a parable is not to take each point unless Christ himself said, well, there are four applications from this parable, like the parable of the soils. But to look at the overall picture and know it's carrying a message. And once you discover that message, the rest of the parable goes away and you just focus on that message. I've always described it like a peanut. You pick up that peanut and you care about it because it has food in it. And then you open it up. The shell is the parable. Eat the, the uh, uh, fruit, but you throw away that uh, husk. And so that's what we're going to do with this parable. We're going to look at the parable, understand the husk. And then once we understand the whole point, then we're going to let the parable go and focus on the, the point. Matthew 25, 1 through 13 is the text that is before us. Let me ask you to stand together with me as we read God's word. And now the word of our king. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in the flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, They all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout 
Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us and for you too, um, or for you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. But while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. That's Father, reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word for the privilege you've given us this very moment to fellowship with you around it. Lord, we pray that you would do a work of grace this morning, a work of grace that would enable us, as we read these words, that they would become more than words, but but food to our spirits, food to our souls, food that that, that might nourish us spiritually or draw us, and open our eyes in give uh, giving us saving faith and the gift of repentance. Lord, we, we pray, do a work of grace this moment. That we might be a people who live on every word that proceeds from your mouth. May these words this morning be our sustenance and our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So Matthew 25, by Matthew 25, we're on Christ's last week of life. He has just entered into Jerusalem as king, received by his people as king. Uh, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. Um, You know, this is Palm uh, Sunday with the palms and the shouting and the glory. And as soon as Jesus got to the Temple Mount, after going down the valley, into the valley of the Kidron Valley and then up to the temple, the first thing he did, you may or may not know, is he cast out the money changers. He attacked Judaism, in essence. Money changers placed there by the high priest, certified, um, authorized by the high priest. He attacked them. And then he went home, or he went to the place he was staying, Bethany. The next day... He came back, and on the way there, there was a, a, a fig tree, you may remember, and, and he went up to get some food. It wasn't in the, in the, the season. He went to, to get fruit, and there was no, no fruit, so he cursed it. And in that moment, the leaves withered. And all that was but a picture and a sign to his disciples that God's pe- this tree is Israel, and it has withered on the vine. Hence, it is going to be cursed. And in, th- in, in very short order, he would hang on a cross and darkness would come upon th- uh, the earth, which everyone knew, if you knew the Old Testament, was, a, was a, a declaration of the curse of God against the land, against his people, Israel. He proceeded after cursing the tree up to the Temple Mount, and there for the last time, he publicly addressed those in the temple court for the last time. That's found in Matthew 22, in the middle of 21 through 22 and 23, where he gave the woes. And then as they were leaving that day, after a day of ministry, 
We pick it up in Matthew 24, 1, where we read these words. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple building to him. The temple buildings. The temple was an amazing architectural thing. The foundation stones were, are, are, were and are 12 feet by 12 feet by 40 feet. Think about how large of a stone that that is. Now, that doesn't compare to the... To the um, pyramids but the disciples hadn't seen the pyramids they've seen this and they knew that their countrymen in generations past somehow some way carved out of bedrock 12 by 12 by 40 100 ton stones and somehow transported them there and built the temple and they are in awe little the now the irony is this they're walking with the infinite God man, they're walking with God who not only made the world with a word, but the universe, all the galaxies, all the stars, all the planets, who at that moment, according to Hebrews 1, was upholding all things by the word of his power. So they're going, Christ, are you impressed? Look at this. And Jesus responded, if you've got just one page back, is to say, I tell you the truth, not one of these stones will be left on another. And the disciples' response is very important. They say, Christ, when will the temple be destroyed, in essence? When is this going to happen? And secondly, what's the sign of your coming? They conflated the, the two as if they were one, but they're not one. And so Matthew 24 through 25, by this time, he's at the Mount of Olives. So he's, he's gone back down into the Kidron Valley talking with his disciples. He's come up to the, to the Mount of Olives, 300 feet above Jerusalem, which means if you've ever been there, I have not, and I know some of you have, you get a panorama view of Jerusalem. And, and it's at that place that Jesus Christ began describing the destruction of that city. I wonder as Christ described it, could he see it? As he gazed upon that city talking to his disciples, could he see the armies um, um, uh, uh, bursting in, destroying, burning the temple, destroying God's people, murdering, hacking, uh, killing horribly? That's the Olivet Discourse. And in this discourse, he tells a variety of parables and each of the parables that he tells from 24 and 25 all revolve around the call to be spiritually alert, to be watchful, to be ready. Every one of them. This, but each one of them has a different angle. If, if, if you can imagine being spiritually vigilant is like a diamond, it has different facets. You can turn it in different angles and see different things. Well, that's what these parables do. They give us different angles to the call to be ready. And this particular parable gives us a very specific angle that we'll look at. So let's look at this parable. I'm going to walk you through. I want to walk you through it. My goal here is simply give you, as we walk through it, the, an understanding of what the disciples and God's people would have heard when they heard this parable. And then we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time applying it. First, let's begin by looking at the setting, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. The background of this parable clearly is the wedding culture, the wedding mores of Judaism at this time. The wedding, you may or may not know, was the most celebrated event in a Jew's life. 
in a community's life. The most celebrated event, a community just went to town on these celebrations. It had three phases to it. Let me introduce you to it. Num, number one, the first phase is the engagement, and that occurred when the children were young. The boy was probably a young man at the age of 13, maybe just became a man, and the girl would probably be uh, much uh, younger, four, five, two, three, maybe a newborn. We don't know, but they're typically younger. And there, those children had nothing to do with this. The, ma- the, the, the dads of both families would get together and say, look, I like your son. Um, you like our family. What do you say we have our son and daughter marry? And so they would, they would become engaged at that point. They would be promised to, to each other. Then when the woman became a woman, the age of 13, um, they would enter into, at some point at that time, they would enter into what is known as the phase two, betrothal. And betrothal occurred when, God, when these two people would, would, would meet and they would take formal vows of, of devotion to God and to each other. And in these vows, they became bound together as man and wife. Except they didn't live together and they didn't sleep t- uh, together. In fact, they at that moment were married. If the man died during betrothal, the woman um, was called a widow in, in Israel. If either one of them were unfaithful, they suffered the consequence of infidelity, of adultery, Leviticus 10.20, which is execution. So they were married. Now, they weren't married as we think of marriage, living in the same home and sharing the, the same bed, but they were married. And that is why when Mary and Joseph betrothed, she was found to be with child, legally Joseph could have her put uh, to death. If anything, he should have divorced her. But that's why it said he was a righteous man and he didn't want to hurt her in any way. So he's going to do it privately. But the angel came to him. Okay, the next phase is known as the wedding feast. And the wedding feast was this incredible gathering where the whole community would be involved. It just wouldn't be a single family. The whole community would come out and gather. And it could last, depending on the person, his wealth, or his status, it could last anywhere from one day to a week. Where you just, for if you're really, really wealthy and really, really honorable, like the son of a king, you might spend a week celebrating the uh, bringing together of this man and this uh, woman. At the end of the celebration, the man and woman will, are married, as we think of, of marriage. Now, prior to the celebration, there was a parade. And the parade occurred when God's people... Uh, would be in their homes waiting for the call. There was not a time like we today say, hey, the wedding's at 2 o'clock. No, this was rather whenever you heard the call. So the way that it worked was the, the bride, the future bride, she would be waiting at her place, at her home or some designated place with her attendants. And then the bridegroom would leave his home, which is where the wedding feast is going to take place, leave his home and go out with his attendants to meet the bride, to meet his bride. And then together, they would form a parade. And the parade would call the entire city to come to the wedding feast. You know, hark, wake up, come, the wedding feast is beginning, come. And they would be going through the streets, yelling it and and proclaiming it. The 
attendants of the bride would be having, would be carrying a special lamp or a torch. We'll talk about that in one moment. And this torch was as much a part of her, like today, a bridesmaid dress. It, it, yeah, it lit their way, but brothers and sisters, the with the parade, they didn't need the way to be lit. What they needed was what was necessary to be in the wedding, and that was necessary was this flame, this torch that they carried that everyone could see in the, the dark. Oh, there's the parade. That brings us then to the contrast. Notice with me verse 2 through 5. And five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the, while the bridegroom delayed, was delaying, that's significant, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. This contains what would have been viewed as a foolish action on the part of the bridesmaids, five of them. They didn't bring a backup oil. They brought enough for their flame. If it was a torch, it would have lasted, we'll talk about that, about 30 minutes. If it was a, a, the flame in a bowl, it would have lasted two to four hours. So they brought enough for a little bit, but not enough if the bridegroom delayed. Perhaps they presumed he would come quickly. Perhaps they presumed there'd be oil at the, bride, or at the bride's house. But for whatever reason, they didn't bring what they needed. Now, let me give you a quick introduction on this lamp. Lampos in the Greek. Um, actually, lampos. Um, there's two possible lamps that are in mind here. The one would be the torch, which would be a stick wrapped in linen that you soaked in um, oil and lit. They typically lasted 30 minutes. The next one would be this little handheld lamp, the hand lamp, which I've got a picture there for, uh, for you, enclosed pottery bowls with a small central hole which was used to feed oil. You'd put the wick on the one side, and you'd light it. The oil would, 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 would be sucked into the wick. These were the most common um, lamps in uh, um, Judaism at this time. They were made mass-produced by the thousands, and they were distributed, obviously bought, and people used them. That's how they got around. Um, so this was their early-day flashlight. Now, there's debate as to which lamp it could be because the text is not quite clear. Um, there is another word for the handheld lamp, luchnos, um, and that lamp, it, that word is always used of the handheld lamp, the picture that you've got. So many commentators say it's probably a torch. The problem with the torch is that if, they're no, if they don't have oil and their bridesmaids' friends do, the other bridesmaids do, then, um, and it, you know, they got oil to, to, to soak a, th a thing in. Why couldn't they have just soaked it in? There'd be enough oil for, for, uh, for more. So the torch becomes problematic when it comes to sharing. Why couldn't they share the oil? Um, so it's believed, no, what they probably has a small flask, enough oil to perhaps fill their, their little thing once. Um, so, um, that, so you, it, but regardless, it doesn't matter which one it is. What matters is, is they didn't bring the backup oil. And that brings us to the oil. What was the oil? A lion. It, it was t uh, typically olive oil or the distilled fat from, from a, uh, um, animal. And it was used to light in that day. All right. So that's. The contrast. And that then brings us to the surprise. And just one footnote I, I left out on the first point, the setting. The virgins, the word literally means a maiden. 
And the significance of this word maiden is that they're, they're, the, they're the contemporaries of the bride and groom. So they could be, we don't know, scholars have no idea who these people are. We don't know anything about the, the, the wedding than the, what we have in scripture. So it's a lot of speculation. I'm calling them bridesmaids, but technically they weren't bridesmaids. They were attendants. Maybe they were friends and family of both the groom and the bridesmaid or the bride. We don't know. Um, but the significant thing is, is that they were, the, they were part and parcel of the community of these young people getting married. That brings us then to the surprise, verses 6 through 10. But at midnight, okay, we know it's been a delay. The text says it. He, uh, the bridegroom was delayed. Some commentaries speculate he was arguing about the uh, dowry. Who knows? But he was delayed. Okay, and he was delayed long enough that he didn't come until midnight. Now that's significant, brothers and sisters, because Christ is teaching the, or giving these parables in context to the second coming of the Lord. And clearly there's going to be a delay. And we need to realize, which we now look back, his disciples need to realize it's going to be a delay. So while there's a delay, I'm not going to go, and in one week come back, there's going to be a delay. That delay's now lasted 2,000 years. And what ought we to be doing in this delay, would you notice? But at midnight, there was a shout, and the language comes from Matthew 7 and Revelation. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to, to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there shall not be enough for us and you too. The fact that the lamps were going out tells us it's probably the, the smaller lamp. They've been burning for a couple hours. A torch wouldn't last that long. Um, so the lamps were going out. But the prudent said, Hey, uh, no, the, there shall not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. So the sudden arrival of the bridegroom caught every one of the bridesmaids, I'm using the word bridesmaids, maidens, caught them sleeping. Now the irony is the previous parable, the emphasis on that was, don't sleep. So if you look at the angle of of watching, and it carries the idea of, guys, don't fall asleep spiritually. Be alert. Be awake at all times. Don't slumber. Don't sleep. This one found all of them slumbering. So the emphasis of watching isn't only on not sleeping. There's another facet to it. We're going to look at that. Okay? So he catches them sleeping. And so quickly they're roused. And quickly their lamps are either going out because they're having that little lamp. And four hours is two to four hours is all it's going to last. Or their torch. This is what makes a little bit sense that they're using that, 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 that hand lamp. Um, commentary is saying, for our lamps are going out. That means that the foolish try to light their, their torch without any oil. And I can't imagine living in that day that long and to actually think that a lamp without, or a torch without oil is going to last more than 30 seconds, which is what a lamp without, uh, without oil, a torch without oil would last. So it makes better sense that their lamps, all of the lamps were going out. Our lamps are going out. There's no oil. Whereas the other virgin's lamps, they just poured oil right back into the uh, vessel, receptacle, and it just kept on burning away. So they're saying, man, give us some of your oil because we don't have any. We don't have that backup. And the five prudent virgins said, 
guys, we can't, if we do that, and then our lamps run out sometime during the ceremony, during the evening, that's a faux pas. That'd be like us not having our bridesmaids' dresses. You guys got to go and get what you need in order to, to participate. So go to the dealers and get some now. Now, a lot of commentators are, are quick to address this because on a first reading, we read this and say, who would be awake at midnight? What dealer is going to be open at midnight? How about you and I knock on Walmart doors at midnight? Hey, someone in there, I need some oil if I'm camping. You know, not going to happen. But one, in answer to that, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus told another parable about prayer. And there he has someone going to their neighbor at midnight asking for food. So this can't be a strange thing. Secondly, this was a wedding, and a wedding was celebrated by the entire uh, community. It is believed that they, all of the dealers would have been up. All of the people, merchants, would have been up. They're your neighbors. You love them. And so they would have been up. It would have been no problem for them to go to the merchant's house, knock on the door and say, man, we're out of oil. Can we get some oil? Of course. Janine, isn't that Janine? Yeah, we would love to have that. You look so nice. Yes, indeed. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Right? <laughs> have I ever told you about your mother's wedding? You know, she just looked just like you. Hurry, hurry. We're in a hurry, right? So they get the oil, and then they go. And uh, that brings us then to the denial. 11 through 12. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord. Matthew 7, 22. You can't miss it. Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Matthew 7, 23. You can't miss it. Up until now, the story he told would have been listened to with a smile and amusement and interest by everyone listening to him, clearly his disciples. They, in fact, probably would have thought back to their wedding, Peter perhaps, and the other disciples, Mary, or to other weddings that they were engaged in, um, involved in when they were, were young all the way up. It was a joyous thing. And so as he told this story, Brothers and sisters, you think of, of leaving oil. Stranger things have been known to happen. I mean, do you remember that wedding, Peter, that three of the, of the bridesmaids dropped their little vessel and it cracked? They had to go to the merchant and go, go back home and get another vessel. Or that time that they were walking and they dropped their flask and they didn't have backup oil. So they had to go, and, uh, go uh, to the merchant and get backup oil. I mean, stranger things have happened. And so they would have been listening to this and tracking right along with, with Christ. No doubt, as you perhaps were, as you're thinking and thinking about a wedding and maybe your wedding. And no doubt, you're, you, were, you were off on other planets at times, and you've come right back, hopefully now. But at this moment, this is the cold hands or the cold feet in a warm bed. This is the cold water on a sleeping person. This is the shock they come to the house, and presumably the bridegroom, because it was been his house, his servants would have said, you got to knock on the door. Should we let him in? And he came up to him and said, I don't know you. Shut the, uh, the door. At that moment, no one would have expected that. That would have been that slap against their face. Whoa, what in the world? Christ, why, why would you say such a horrible story? Because the kingdom of heaven, the coming of Christ, the end time is going to be just like this. What's the point, Christ? So that's the parable. That's the, the shell. Let's throw away that shell now. Let's focus on 
the point. The point is, found, is given to us in verse 13. We don't have to speculate. 13, would you notice? Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. The call is for God's people, once again, to be alert. The word for alert, let me give it to you. It's the word gregoreo. And it's the word that means to be spiritually vigilant. Okay? It doesn't just mean to, to, to look. It means to be ready, to be prepared. To, to we, When I was a kid, we, I played football. And we had a, a football drill. Now it would be outlawed. But in Little League football, it was maybe the joy of the coach to watch this. I don't know. But he'd line us up 10 yards apart. And one row had to have your back to the guy behind you. And then he'd blow a whistle. And the guy behind you would run full speed 10 yards and hit you. And at the last moment, he'd blow a whistle and you could turn around. And it was bowling balls. I mean, it was like, wow, right? To be alert is the moment. You, when I turned around, I didn't turn around just to go, what's going on? I turned around ready to be hit. That's the idea here. It's to be watchful, to be prepared. It's to anticipate what's going to happen and make sure that you're ready to do it when the time comes. All of us, after two or three times of that drill, you began cheating. You know, you, you began moving your feet so you could turn instantly as opposed to taking steps, right? You prepared. You did what was necessary to prepare for this impending bowling ball match where, and you always hate it if you've got the biggest, fattest guy on the team, and there always were those. That was me, by the way. I was one of the biggest, fast guys. You always hate if you had him on your team because he could crush you, right? So you're ready. You're prepared. I don't want to be, I don't want to be decked. That's the idea here, is to be spiritually vigilant. Brothers and sisters, throughout God's word, God, the second coming of Christ has with it the call for you and I to be ready. Now, ready means that we're not spiritually asleep, chapter 24. But ready here also has this idea that we are ready and prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. Because he could come any moment. You know that. The imminency of Christ's return is not that he's going to come in the next second. But it's to say that God no longer has a redemptive um, element on his, on his timetable. Like the building of a temple. Like the bringing his people back uh, from exile. Like the coming of Jesus Christ. Like the death of Jesus Christ. Like the resurrection. All of those are are redemptive necessities that, could, that had to take place before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, when Jesus Christ rose up, ascended into heaven, we're done. There are no more redemptive expectations in terms of events or things that must take place before Jesus Christ uh, comes back. That's what it means when we talk about the imminency of Christ's return. On God's redemptive t- t- uh, 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 clock, it is... It is um, 1159, 59 seconds, and that, that second hand is clicking. It's in the middle of clicking. It's coming towards midnight, towards noon, whatever, towards 12. It's in the process. It's, it's going, that's how close we are in God's redemptive program to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So there's nothing to delay. You ought not to delay. We are called to be ready for that moment. In fact, in Scripture, when we look at that, things that come to mind would be things like, one, to showing ourselves approved of God at all times, 2 Timothy 2. 
Secondly, it would be presenting ourselves to God as a living and holy sacrifice. That's what it means to be ready. At all times, we are presenting ourselves as that. That's what we are. God's presented us to him as that. Thirdly, it's being ready for the coming of Christ, not holding on to the things of this world. Second Peter, or 2 Timothy 2.14, 2.4, excuse me describes that the soldier in common life does not interfere with it, does not concern himself with the concerns of this life. Brothers and sisters, you know what? As a Christian, we're not to concern ourselves with the things of this life. What does that mean? That simply means we ought not to allow the things of this life to compromise our calling as a soldier. That's what it means to be overly involved in the concerns of this life. Did they, were they concerned for the wives and their, their kids? Of course. But did it make them compromise their service? If it did, then they were overly concerned. If it didn't, then they were good soldiers. We're called as God's people not to be so preoccupied and, and, and uh, um, taken by, taken up with the things of this world that it causes us to be compromised in our joy, compromised in our love, compromised living in peace and patience towards one another. Brothers and sisters, if you've been preoccupied with the things of this life, your job, your health, the pandemic, the economy, if those things have got you running with, like a chicken with a head, right? If that's you, you are preoccupied. God's word would say, be ready. You're not ready for the return of Christ because you're preoccupied by the things of this world. Don't let the things of this world compromise your fidelity and the call God's placed on your life of his service in his name. That being said, that's the generic exhortation. The text before us has a very specific application. As you look at the word watch, what is that application? Most commentaries uh, uh, addressing this say something like this. this is a, a, these are my words, but a synopsis of 10, 15 commentaries. The foolish brought no oil at all. That was their folly. They brought their lamps, but failed to bring oil to make the lamps usable. Let me say it again. The foolish brought not, no oil at all. That was their, their folly. They brought lamps, but failed to bring oil to make the lamps usable. So the angle of watching here is, do you understand? Christ is saying, there are going to be people in the last day who've done everything to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. They dress the right dress. They say the right things. They look, they sound just like his people. They're going to go through all that effort and, let's face it, sacrifice to look and act like a child of God. And that's a lot. But they're going to fall short on this one point and that will cost them their soul. And that one point, brothers and sisters, is trust in Jesus Christ. In our day, you see it. Let me read Edersheim's quote. The, the foolishness of the five virgins consisted not in the want of perseverance, but in the absence of personal preparation, the entire absence of personal preparation. Uh, it wasn't that they didn't work. They just weren't prepared. And how incredible is it to, to be someone? How many, so this is directed at the church. This parable is directed at the body of Jesus Christ. Saying, man, think of all the things you've sacrificed to be, to be called, to be named amongst the people of God. The time spent here at worship. Right? All the Bible reading. All the praying that you've done. 
all the saying no to sin that you would like to do in your flesh, but you can't because you're a child of God, because you're, you go to the church. You're a, a, a religious person. Midweek services, the money given. I mean, how much money have you given in the name of God for the cause of Jesus Christ? I mean, you've done all this stuff only to be shocked and discover, to discover Matthew chapter 7 on the last day, God comes to you and says, I don't care how much you prophesied in my name, and I don't care how many demons you've cast out in my name. Be gone from me. I never knew you. Let those words rest heavy upon you. Imagine hearing those words. Why would Christ say that to people who went to church every day, every week? Gave so much, did so much, taught Sunday school. Why would Christ say that to them? Because one thing they lack, and that is what? Well, let me ask you this. Why are you saved? 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail the, the test. So test yourself. Let me ask you, why are you saved? Why do you believe that you'll be in glory when you die? Now, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you here. If your answer involves I, you're barking up the wrong tree. It has nothing to do with you. You're saved a person saved because Jesus Christ died on the cross in their place. It has nothing to do with you. It's not I'm saved because, because I believe. I say because I love Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it has nothing to do with your faith. It has nothing to do with your love. It has everything to do with what God did at the cross, in Christ, in time, on your behalf. And if you're living this world thinking that because of, I'm, I'm not a Hitler, I'm not a Jeffrey Dahmer, I'm a basically generally good person who goes to church, pays my taxes, and tries to help people. If that is you, you are going to receive the words, I never knew you. Hear that. God is, Christ here has given this parable to a, a generation, most of which would be damned. Did you hear that? Most of Judaism at the time of Jesus Christ, when he died on the, the cross and the darkness came, that was a declaration of God's judgment, not only against Christ, or it was against Christ for our sin, but with the moment that that temple curtain was rent, it was a judgment as well against Judaism, which culminated in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple as Christ prophesied in Matthew 24. Do you realize most of that generation died in their sin? But they died, before they died, they died thinking that I'm going to heaven. Christ warned in all of it discourse. The times to come when people thinking they're rendering God's service. We're talking Yahweh. 
They're going to persecute you and kill you. But they're not serving God. They're serving themselves. How much horribleness has been done in the name of God and in the name of the love for God when certainly it had nothing to do with God. It had everything to do with them. This parable is dedicated to the body of Jesus Christ and everyone in it who doesn't understand that you are saved because of an alien, an outside righteousness given to you because of God's choice, not your own. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, I chose you, said God. Well, how does that righteousness given to, to you? God opens your eyes such that you say, that's my reason for salvation. That's why I'm saved. Family of God, let me ask you something. Why are you saved? If your answer is because I believe, you're looking at yourself. I hope every one of you says, it is because that sacrifice is my sacrifice. That sacrifice is what saves me. Jesus Christ's righteous life and his horrible death, his sacrificial death, that's what saves me. If that is your profession this day, then praise be to God. You know, you can know, you are a child of the living God. But if your profession is, I believe, I love, I do, I don't. And brothers and sisters, you may not be a brother or sister. Come to Christ this day. Come to Christ this moment. He could come back this afternoon. Don't wait another second. Come to Christ this day and by grace, through faith, say, that sacrifice is mine. You know, it's funny. We have a hard time with this, I think. But in Judaism, it would not have been, that would not be a hard statement to, to uh, understand because every day, sacrifices were being rendered in the temple. Every day. And so as you were living your life as a Jew, sinning as you might, you know there's a sacrifice being offered this very moment for me. And that's why I know God remains my God. Because that sacrifice is being offered for me. Brothers and sisters, live that way. But it's not a sacrifice that's ongoing. The effects are. But that sacrifice that Christ offered 2,000 years ago was for that sin you just committed. And that impure thought. And that lazy activity. And that bad attitude. That cross. That Christ. That salvation. That offering is yours. And if that is your heart this day, yes, that's my sacrifice. Praise be to God. But if it's not, pray. Oh, pray this day. God, open my eyes. Give me grace to believe, faith to believe. Give me grace to turn from self-trust. Turn from thinking I've, been, I've, been, I've done good enough to be saved. And go to Christ. Now, by way of application. To those of you who have, who, who do believe this day, saying, that sacrifice is my salvation right there. That's it. Why you say it, Greg? It has nothing to do with me because, brothers and sisters, I am a wretch. I know I'm the chief of sinners. I know my sin. I'm saved because of that work outside of me offered on my behalf. Praise be to God. But to the us, 
Can we glean something from this parable? I'm going to suggest to you that, brothers and sisters, while the oil, whether it's faith or works or whatever, I'm not saying what the oil is. The call is for us to trust alone in Christ's sacrifice. But, brothers and sisters, I mean, let me tell you something. As Christians, while we are trusting alone for in that sacrifice, most of you are going to say, yes, I'm saved because of that sacrifice. We don't live in light of the sacrifice. We don't live in light of the trust. We, we don't live trusting in the God of that sacrifice. We don't. We spend our lives suffering the consequence of a sa- we sacrifice our well-being. Turn with me to 1 Samuel, just real quick. Let me give you an example of that in a man's life. And this is my close. 1 Samuel 21. David, at this point, has already been declared king, anointed king, not in a public ceremony, but by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. Saul has already been kicked out, has already been disqualified from being king, but he wouldn't leave the monarchy in the Old Testament times until he died. So he, would, he, got, he got disqualified, but it didn't, it didn't cost him his regency. He'd finished, but his line's done. Okay? So David, as you know... Um, was uh, he was anointed in First Samuel sixteen, and and then um, word got out about the Philistines. You know, you know what happened. David goes down there, and God moves him. God blessed this man, and so God moves him, gave him courage. I'll take on Goliath. He goes, takes on Goliath, kills Goliath. Saul's amazed, brings him into his household, treats him like his son, loves him like his son, and nothing could be better. Until David grows up a little bit more and starts going out as a soldier in Saul's army. And people started then saying these chants when David came to the city. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul heard that. Even though he was already disqualified, he thought, usurper. So his heart changed towards him. and He started hating David. He started trying to kill David. Well, it came to a climax where Jonathan came to David and said, David... David came to Jonathan and said, I think your dad wants to kill me. No, go and talk to your dad. He comes back and said, my dad wants to kill you. I can't believe it. So David's on flight. He's running for his life. So if you, you look on the map I gave you there, he, he runs to Nob, real close to Jerusalem. Runs to the city of Nob. It's a priestly city. He has no food, has no weapons. And there he takes the consecrated bread. And there he's like, weaponless. So the priest says, well, you, there is Goliath's sword. I mean, you did kill him. You can have it. Great. So he took Goliath's sword. And then you know what this crazy man did in his flight? Do you know where he went? Well, you can look at the map. He went to Gath. Gath is the hometown of Goliath. He shows up with Goliath's sword on his belt. You can just imagine everyone's like, whoa. He went there incognito. He went there hoping just to be viewed as nobody. But he's carrying Goliath's sword. Okay, well, it, it doesn't take long, and the text is before us. Then David arose, fled that day from Saul, went to Achish, uh, king of Gath, when the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David is ten thousands? Look what it says. And David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. I want you to see something, brothers and sisters. When David felt threatened, rather than trusting God... He took matters into his own hand. How many Christians are doing that today in Christ? You've got Christ for your salvation. Why don't you trust Christ for your protection? Temporal. But we don't. We're just like David. And because David feared Saul, it put him in a more difficult circumstance. Notice, now he's greatly fearing Achish, king of Gath. 
In fact, it was so bad, notice with me verse 20, or 13. So David disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down his beard. This is a man after God's own heart. This is the beloved of God. If you could go in a time machine and go back at that point, you would look at this man and say, that man is, is someone God loves? Why are you living that way, David? You're a man after God's own heart? Why are you choosing to live that way? Brothers and sisters, that's the exhortation I would give you if you're in Christ this day. Why, brothers and sisters, do you choose to accept Christ for the salvation of your soul 99.9% of, of, of the job, 99.99999% of, of everything that, that, that you need in this life is done on, on Calvary? Why are you then not trusting Christ to take care of then the secondary insignificant issues which are so easy to take care of, your personal issues of this day? God made the world with a voice. He raised the dead. He holds the stars in space. He upholds your beating heart. But because you're stressed today, your answer is, let me do all these man-made things that will protect me. Just like David. You know what that does? It leads to despair. It leads to, to, to being people who, are def- who, who walk around as the living dead. Defeated. I'm living, but I'm living as if I'm dead. There is no God. You've heard the story of Martin Luther. He had these horrible depression things, right? And, and over and over and over, and he's sitting there in his chair, depressed, burdened, and his wife changed her clothes from her daily wear to her morning. That's all they had was two sets. Daily wear to morning. She put on her morning dress. She walked into the room or down the stairs or whatever it was. And Martin Luther looked at her and said, in his depressed state, who died? She said, God. And it made him mad. He said, how dare you say God died? We're talking about God. And she said, well, then why are you acting like he died? You're acting like God doesn't reign. Brothers and sisters, let me exhort you this day. You're trusting Christ for 99.9999% of your life. Why are you taking that 0.00001% as if it's yours? Trust God. Trust him for your soul and trust him for your well-being. He will make it good. Listen to this. The fear of man brings a snare, Proverbs 29. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Christ gave this parable to a group of men who were about to be uh, uh, sifted like wheat. And yes, their salvation is tied up in the cross of Jesus Christ, but so is their sanctification. So is their well-being. So let's just not take our salvation and, for, and leave the rest up to, to us. Let's, let's give it all to, to God, trusting God for all of it, not just a part. Because brothers and sisters... Don't ever forget it. Those that wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They'll walk and never faint. May God give us the grace this day to trust Christ 100%. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible parable and the incredible exhortation that you gave to your disciples and to us, your your disciples, your people. 
as it once again forces us to sit back and ask, why am I saved? And Lord, insofar as it's because I believe, I know I won't always believe, and now I wonder if I'm saved. And insofar as it's because I love you, and then I fail in my duties, and I know your word says, if you love me, you'll keep my uh, commandments. I look at my rebellion, I go, I must not love you, therefore I must not be saved. Father God, I pray. Shake us, your church, out of this wicked cycle of self-trust that only leads to misery. Your people have committed two evils. They've forsaken you, the fountain of living otters, to hew for themselves broken sisters that can hold none. Lord, that is an apt description of us in our lives. Grant us, O Lord, to turn, to repent from self-trust and self-labor, to build those cisterns. And to trust you that that bubbling stream of Jeremiah 2 with the fresh water would always last. And we know it will, as John or as Christ told the Samaritan woman, in your soul will spring forth springs of water. God, may that be our sustenance and joy, the knowledge of your grace. And may the Lord that give us the boldness and the confidence to run and not grow weary, to walk and not faint. Lord, for the ones here this day who do not know you, who perhaps by your working of your spirit, O oh Lord, we pray, you open their eyes to the realization that their faith the entire time has been in them, in their faith, in their love, in their works, in their religious activity. God, open their eyes that they might see their need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. That, Father, they would, they would this day have scales removed to behold the sacrifice, the sacrifice of, of Christ and see that that's their, that's their sacrifice. That's the joy of their heart. God, save them, we pray. And Lord, to now as we go to this table, may it be of this glorious time of celebration, not of what we have done, but what you did on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name.